from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to Still Growing. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. I've got another great show for you today. We're going to wrap up our interview with Emily Tepe, the author of The Edible Landscape. But before we do that, I'm going to cover a few of the usual housekeeping items and give you a view from up here. Don't forget you can check out the show notes for today's episode over at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find the Still Growing Podcast in the top menu and then just scroll down to episodes and you'll find all the show notes and all the episodes located there. If you head on over to iTunes, if you wouldn't mind giving me a review there, that would be awesome. You could also get the show there. If you happen to be listening on Stitcher Radio, if you wouldn't mind hitting that little thumbs up button and really does help down in the corner, I'd really appreciate it. All right, so let me share a little bit about what's going on uh, at our house here this week. It's been a real frenzy of activity as the kids and I get ready for our trip to Boston to visit Phil. The kids are super excited. Phil has been at Harvard for the past month. Um, He's got another month to go, and he is going through their AMP program, which is basically a a master's program in business. He is um, spending a ton of time in this very compressed program, um, studying. He gets up around uh, 7 in the morning. The program starts around 8, and he wraps up every night around 11. So um, he and I usually Skype uh, very late, right before bedtime, but he's having a wonderful time. He's learning so much, and he's got this fabulous living group. They they divide the participants into these living groups, and um, the people that are in his living group are from all over the world, from places like Oman and uh, Australia and England and France, Japan, uh, Taiwan, you name it, uh, Chile. And so he's he's getting such a, a wonderful opportunity to learn and grow with people from all over the world. And it's really a fabulous experience for him. So we're excited to go and experience what Harvard has been like for him. I'll get a chance to attend a couple classes um, I think it's Friday morning. I'll get a chance to do that and see what what the experience is like. I have a case study, a finance case study of all things that I have to take a look at. Um, and then there'll be a class on leadership for me to for me to attend. And while I'm doing that, Phil will be taking the kids to the um, aquarium, so they will uh, have a wonderful time while I am. Um, taking these classes. So it should be a great uh, time for us, a great vacation out in Boston this week, and uh, also get a chance to sample some of the fall weather out there, which is, of course, a wonderful time to be out east. At Everest Lane House this week, I'm slowly changing over the home decor to reflect the fact that autumn is upon us. And I've written two blog posts this week about a few ideas that I like that you can use also to slowly transform your home to get it ready for Halloween. First, I have a post on switching out your library to display some spookier volumes. And I love this subtle way to decorate for Halloween. If you've ever been to someone's house and it's just like Halloween all over, sometimes that gets a little bit much. But Subtle changes like just switching out um, some books to have things like Dracula or um, 
uh, mysteries or Hitchcock, something like that, um, just as a subtle way to kind of embrace the season. Second, I share a photo of a super cute Halloween garland they had draped over a mantle. It was featured in this month's Real Simple magazine, and it inspired me to create my own version. And so I wrote a post on this do-it-yourself Halloween garland without the cost and with minimal effort to achieve the very same look that they did in the magazine. And I share my step-by-step on how I did it in a post on, um, it's called Halloween Garland. In the garden, I'm starting my fall cleanup and I've trimmed back all the dying foliage. That's an ongoing process because it's just continuing to yellow now as the temperatures get colder and... um, and things just start naturally uh, going through senescence. But um, one of the things that I've started doing is I'm covering my trouble spots with newspaper and mulch so that I can have a fresh start next spring. Instead of waiting to address some of those areas, I want to try to deal with them now so that um, I get a chance to just start fresh when we hit the ground running next April. I've got all my bulb catalogs in a nice pile by the sofa. And next week, my master gardener friends, Jamie and Marilyn and Mary Lynn, are joining me for our first annual fantasy bulb order. (laughs) I can't even say it. Our first annual fantasy bulb order. You need to think of it as a twist on fantasy football. So it's um, instead of fantasy football, it's fantasy bulb ordering. And that's what we're going to do together. It should be a fun time. Shannon Slatten from our local uh, Channel 12 TV joined me, in, joined me in the kitchen this past week to do a segment on preserving your herb harvest. And so in preparing for that segment, I started researching all the different ways that you can preserve herbs, and many of them I've done. A few of them I actually hadn't tried, and so this gave me a chance to kind of pull some of those things together and experiment a little bit. So I wrote a post that uh, is called Seven Ways to Preserve Your Herb Harvest, And I'll share them quickly with you now. Um, Drying them upside down, which of course is kind of the old-fashioned favorite. I love it. And I actually have a a fabulous spot in the house where I dry my herbs, kind of on display for people to see. But it's fabulous. And I have to say it makes your house smell wonderful. So that's another wonderful benefit. Of course, you can freeze them in a Ziploc bag. You can freeze them in ice cube trays uh, and then cover them with either oil or water. And then when they're done, pop them in a Ziploc bag. You can dry them in the microwave, which is something that I had not tried. Um, but I tried it with some sage for the segment that I did for Channel 12. And it turned out so fabulous. It was so quick. You basically dry the herb in the microwave for about three to four minutes and it just crumbles and then you put it in a jar and you can use it. So loved that one. Um, Making herb salt is another great way to preserve your your herbs. Um, I did a Tuscan herb salt with rosemary and sage and garlic and another wonderful way to make your house smell fabulous. I sent some home with Shannon after the shoot. And she sent me an email the next day and she just went bonkers for this herb salt, which I thought was fabulous. So great feedback on that. If you want to give that a try, the recipe is on the post as well. Making compound butter is one of my favorite simple things that you can do with herbs. That's also on the post. And then finally, my glory pesto or making pesto. I have this recipe I call glory pesto because I think it's so good that it makes you want to fall down to your knees and thank the good Lord for fabulous things like 
like basil and pesto. So all of those things are available on the blog if it's something you're interested in trying out. This past week, I finished interviews with both Joel Karsten, who's the pioneer and the author of the fabulous book, Straw Bale Gardens. Um, he and I both have a um, have share the same hometown. So that was also a, another fun uh, reason to get together. We could kind of uh, reminisce about our, our hometown of Worthington together. Um, and then the other interview that I completed this week was with Deborah Madison, and she's the mother of vegetarian cooking. She's the author of the wonderful cookbook, Vegetable Literacy. And it was fun to meet with her. Um, we ha- shared a meal at a Spoon River on Saturday night. Um, and Spoon River is a, a great restaurant here in town in Minneapolis. And so we had uh, just the most beautiful meal um, start to finish and great conversation together. Um, she was so gracious, such a gem. Um, so that was a great week, uh, reminiscing with Joel, catching up with him. And of course, he's he's such a great interview because he just tells it like it is. And um, Joel is so innovative and entrepreneurial. Um, and yet he's got this uh, very um, no-nonsense you know, pragmatic farm boy background that makes him so wonderful to talk to. So I think you're going to enjoy both of those interviews. On a personal note, I'm sitting here loving my new mug from Caribou Coffee. Uh, We're taking it down a notch here, but it is so adorable. It's got this little owl on it and it's on the shelves now. So if you have a Caribou near you or any coffee shop, consider getting yourself a new coffee mug for fall as a little pick-me-up. You can take it out in the garden, watch the, the season change right in front of you. Um, don't forget to feed the birds. And um, that's the view from up here this week. So now I'm going to resume my interview with Emily Teppe, the author of The Edible Landscape. And just as a quick refresh, Emily is an edible landscaping expert, and she's also a garden writer and researcher. I discovered Emily through her fabulous blog. It's called artichokesandzinnias.com, and I love that title. It's kind of the A to Z on gardening, um, on edible gardening, and it's just adorable. So fabulous title and a great little blog. Um, You should definitely check it out. In our last episode, we touched on everything from her introduction to gardening, to her background in design and horticulture, um, the fact that she's living on a historic ranch inside the Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, which is, as Emily says, a beautiful place to be. And she's getting to experience gardening in an even harsher climate than Minnesota on the on the downside, I guess, if there is a downside to living in such a beautiful place. It's the fact that um, our national park rules are such that she cannot have a garden of her own inside the park, which I totally understand. And even if she could, um, to her point, the the animals there, the natural wildlife in the park would probably just take off with all of it anyway. So um, that's the only trade-off is that she's this gardener and she's unable to garden right now. But at some point, I know she'll resume that and she won't always be on the ranch. Um, and in the meantime, she, she can build up some pent-up demand for getting in the garden. One of the other things that um, Emily talked about was um, why she wrote her book, The Edible Landscape. And she shared the things that she learned about writing about edibles and then how to get 
uh, a lot out of your garden in a short amount of time, especially when you live in a colder climate. So those are some of the things that we covered in part one. We had just finished talking about um, some creative edible gardening practices when we had when we finished part one. And now as we head into part two, Emily is going to share more about some of her favorite edibles in the garden and some of her tips and techniques for, for growing them and incorporate incorporating them into your landscape design. Let's resume the interview. Um, one creative thing I've seen recently when we were photographing for the book, one of the gardeners that we were photographing had chickens in her yard. And uh, of course she had a coop that they could stay in, but during the day she would let them out and they would just wander around the garden and scrape and, and peck around and, and eat insects and little weeds and things like that in, in the garden. And they never hurt the plants at all, but it was great to see basically these two food production systems coming together in the same in the same place and I thought that was just a, a great a great thing to see and a, it kind of takes the edible landscaping idea to the next level. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, and that's something I would just love to have as a chicken coop. But of course, in my suburban home, we're not we're not zoned for it. Mm, so uh, right. it'll it'll be a someday thing for me. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's coming around. I think that'll become more and more common. Yes, I think it will on. too. Yeah. Now, what's the biggest mistake that a home gardener makes when they're starting off with edibles? What do you see typically? Oh, uh, that's easy. Planting too much. It's it's so that kind of draws from what I was talking about earlier is the simplicity idea. It's it's really easy to get ahead of yourself and want to want to create a big garden immediately and plant everything. But it's really important, especially as busy as people are, to really understand what you're getting yourself involved in. Because frankly, an ornamental garden is is a bit easier to maintain than a food producing garden, especially when it comes to harvest, of course. And, um, and it's even more important with edibles to keep weeds out of the garden and things like that. And so I think it's really important for people, if they're just getting started, to start small and to see just how much time it takes to take care of these plants and also to see if they really enjoy taking care of, of, of a garden. They might not like it as much as they think they do. So if you start small it's much easier to handle and and get an idea of how much you really enjoy doing this. And as you as you experience that and as you get used to it, you can add more and more. But but it's a good idea just to to start a little small and to um, to really get an idea of what this will mean to to your schedule and <laughs> and just keep it keep it simple. Well, and you know, when you've got a big garden too, you you need to prepare yourself for more loss. And I think that's something that I find really shocks people too, um, because when they're losing, you know, they just can't get it in the ground fast enough or they can't keep Mm -hmm. up with the watering. Um, That gets discouraging to people, especially with how much things cost these days. Right. Absolutely. So if you only have a few plants to take care of, it's more likely that you will give them the care that they really need. Yeah. It's that law of scarcity. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've been looking forward to doing this part of the interview with you for a long time. <laughs> and I was thinking about now, how am I going to ask all these questions? Because there's so many different 
types of questions you can get into when you're trying to get into the edible nitty gritty. And Mm -hmm. what I thought we would do is play a little game about edibles. And so I will mention a category or a question, and then you tell me what comes to mind for you as an edible landscaping expert. Okay. Okay. The three most beautiful edibles to grow. Uh, chard, number one. Okay. <laughs> um, blueberries. Okay. And mm, celery. Celery. Okay, you've got to tell me more about the celery, why you've included them. I Well, that was a toss-up because the other one I was thinking of is Malabar spinach, which is a climbing hmm. type of spinach, and it's really beautiful. But celery, I think, no, people don't grow it very often. And grown in the garden. When it's grown commercially, it's usually um, blanched, so it, it stays that really pale green color. But if you don't do that, if you don't color the stalk, if you don't cover the stalks, sorry, it stays this really deep green. And the, the real just strong vertical stems are just such an unusual looking thing in the garden. And I think with those those clean stems and then the, the leaves on top and the really deep green color. I just think it's a really beautiful plant and it plays really well against some softer textured plants, say like lettuces or even ornamental, small ornamental flowers look really nice next to it because it's got such a bold texture to it. Tell us a little bit about blueberries, why you pick blueberries. Blueberries have um, just have a really nice form. They're a, a woody shrub and so they'll, they'll be in your garden year after year. And so the shape of the plant is just really nice, and they're very easy to prune to keep that shape. And then in the summertime, the leaves are just a beautiful deep green, but then they get the most spectacular red color in the fall. And it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous plant to have in the landscape. Okay, and for people who are not familiar with the Malabar spinach, I know that was your your tie, your third runner-up. Let's mm-hmm. give that some due as well. How do people find it? How do they plant it? What would you tell them to do? How tall is it going to get? That kind of stuff. Yeah, it definitely needs to be planted near some kind of structure because it will climb um, very I think it would. it grows, I don't know, maybe if you were to stretch out one of the vines, maybe to 10 feet or so throughout the season, but it, um, it, it climbs and it branches out and it just, it's a beautiful deep green color. Some varieties have a red stem. And so that adds even more punch to it. And, um, I think I've seen it as transplants in a couple garden centers, but I think mostly these days it needs to be started from seed. It's just not quite popular enough yet, but, um, but it's just a really interesting plant. It's a little, it, it has the flavor of spinach. It's a little bit different in texture. Um, and so it's, you know, it might just take a little bit of getting used to it in terms of, of eating it. It's got more of a, I don't know. I, mm, <laughs> I hate, I, I hesitate to say slimy, but it has kind of, when it's cooked, it has a, it's not doesn't cook down quite as far as spinach does. Okay. Um, so it's a little bit different, but it looks just beautiful, and it, it climbs arbors or um, or trellises just really really nicely. And when you're and harvesting a, it, you're just harvesting the leaves, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. You can just clip the leaves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, yeah. name a few edibles that are ideal for growing in pots. When you think about containers, what comes uh-huh. to your mind? Uh, definitely leafy greens 
any kind of lettuces or um, arugula or mustard greens do great in containers. Chard and kale also do really well. Herbs, I love growing in containers. Um, they do they do great in containers, and then they're easy to bring inside also if you want to overwinter them. Tomatoes can do really well in containers. They'll they'll need some kind of support, and I think it's important to think of 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 the aesthetics of this. So <laughs> I, I try to dissuade people from growing tomatoes in five gallon buckets with a tomato cage stuck in there because I think it it just doesn't look very nice. There's that designer. But, <laughs> <laughs> but given a given a nice container with some kind of beautiful obelisk that you stick in there and maybe a few ornamentals around the base to cover up the kind of raw bare stem of the tomato. I think tomatoes can look beautiful in pots. And then also, I mentioned just briefly earlier, zucchini. If you have a like a half barrel size container, zucchini is fantastic in pots hmm. because it keeps the, the fruits off the ground and so they don't tend to rot like they do when they're growing on the ground. And it just really maintains a much healthier plant that way. And they look great in, in pots too. So those are a few. Now, um, briefly, you mentioned overwintering herbs, and mm-hmm. I can't let anyone um, on the show mention overwintering this time of year <laughs> and not having them elaborate just a little bit. Um, what herbs would you recommend for people to overwinter inside for, for the cold climate gardener? Because, of course, that's so yeah. tempting. But mm-hmm. what, will they, what should they overwinter for maximum success? Um. I tend to say I don't I don't bring in all my herbs certainly a lot of things like oregano and sage and thyme do really well just staying outside over the winter and they tend to grow so big also that I don't want to bring them in but if I've got something like parsley that's not going to overwinter well I'll I'll dig that out and put it in a pot and bring it inside because I love to be able to use it and if I've got a smaller oregano or thyme plant, I'll, I'll do that too. Um, but I, I don't necessarily bring them in to overwinter them so they survive to plant out again. I, I generally just bring them in so I can keep harvesting from them a little bit through the winter. And it doesn't always work great for me. Um, certainly putting them by a sunny window where I live doesn't work very well because the windows are so cold <laughs> that they don't, they don't grow very well. But if I've got a nice, um, a nice bright room that I can put them in. They tend to do pretty well. Um, in colder places, if you want to keep rosemary growing, that's one that I think pretty much needs to be brought inside over the winter. It just isn't quite hardy enough to, to make it through the winters. I know it. I've had it survive once or twice, but it's not really reliable. Um, but yeah, those are those are some ideas. But but generally, I don't try to save things too much by bringing them into overwinter. It's mostly just to get a little bit more use out of them throughout the throughout the fall and winter if I can. Okay. Now you mentioned the Malabar spinach, but other than that, what comes to your mind when we say arbors? What are the edibles that are perfectly suited for arbors? Mm, grapes would probably be my first choice. Um, beans and peas and, and tomatoes, especially the, the big trailing indeterminate types can do really well on an arbor. And then it's great, especially if they're the small fruited varieties, like a small cherry tomato, or maybe the red currant, 
uh, tomato, those are great when they're on arbors because the fruits tend to just hang right down in view. Whereas a lot of times with those indeterminate tomatoes, they get so thick and bushy, you can't really even find the tomatoes in there. And so on an arbor, it's really great because they hang right down in view and they're easy to pick. Now, what are, in your mind, what are the top five most colorful edibles to grow? Mm, uh, chard, again, is number <laughs> one. <laughs> because the, the different varieties have so many different colored stems, anywhere from white to pale yellow, gold, pink, deep red. They're just, they're just beautiful plants. Yeah, it's a great plant. It's so easy to grow. Um, colorful edibles, lettuces also with all the different varieties of speckled leaves and red, and they're just really beautiful. Um, kale, anywhere from a real silvery blue to a really deep red and everything in between. You've talked a lot about kale, um, Mm -hmm. or at least you've mentioned it in passing for a lot of these questions. Um, kale is something that it's, it's hard for people to get acquainted with. Yeah. I'm not really sure why that is, other than maybe people just don't really know what to do with it. Yeah. What do you do with it? They pick it. I love, well, when a lot of people say, especially in the North, a lot of people say that you shouldn't pick kale until you've had a hard frost because then the flavor is so much better. Okay. I personally pick kale all season long. Um, I, I don't really notice that big of a difference. And, and again, I like things that I can pick for a longer part of the season. But I use smaller kale leaves in salads. If they're really young, tender leaves, I'll throw a few a few in with a lettuce salad. But then I, um, I saute kale a lot and use maybe a little bit of balsamic vinegar or lemon juice on it. And it's just so good once it cooks down. It's just got such a nice earthy, earthy flavor. I'll also put it into soups. I'll chop it up and put it into a a frothy soup right at the end so it cooks down a bit. And um, gosh, and there are just, yeah, so many things like that. But really the simplest is just steaming it or sauteing it and and giving it a little bit of flavor with, you know, it's a flavored oil or vinegar. And it's just so, so good. And it's one of the healthiest things we can eat. So Hmm. I definitely recommend that people give it a try. Hmm. yeah, there are, and and online now there are so many places to find recipes that if you just look up kale recipes, you'll get tons of ideas. They're out there. Yeah, they are out there. Well, maybe between um, now and when I publish the uh, the podcast, if you have a kale recipe, shoot it on over, and I'll put it on the okay. website. Sure, we'll something do. for folks great. to try. Yep, something okay, you endorse. Good. Now, um, what are a few of the the higher, more higher maintenance edibles in your mind? Things mm-hmm. that maybe. A, a new gardener or someone who is just pressed for time has unpredictable schedule might not want to mm-hmm. go there. As as much as I don't like to say this, um, tomatoes I think are really high maintenance. They're they're wonderful, and I love growing them and I love eating them. But they're I'm I fuss with tomatoes all the time, <laughs> just trying to get them to climb their their trellis or or whatever stake I've used and and. They just they get so overgrown so quickly that if you forget about them, they just become a mess. I think they're high maintenance, but I also love to grow them because there's nothing better than a homegrown tomato. So I certainly wouldn't 
call them too high maintenance to to try, but but people should be aware that they can get kind of out of control and you sort of have to keep up with them. Strawberries can be high maintenance if you have the types that send out a lot of runners Mm -hmm. because you just need to keep an eye on those and cut those back so they don't become a big, a big, um, a big patch. I think the longer season vining plants are a bit challenging. So things like winter squash or melons, they, they, they will grow as far as you let them and then even further. And, and they can take up a lot of space in a, in a, in a short amount of time. And, um, and then they tend to not look so good later in the season when things are ripening. So yeah. it's important to think about if you really want to grow pumpkins or, or melons, it's important to think about if you, if you care about aesthetics like I do, you probably don't want this dead looking vine in your garden from August through fall. Um, and so it's important to think about, well, what could you plant to maybe mask that a little bit or, yeah. or make that not be such a, a major part of your garden? So those things are a little bit trickier. One question that um, I've heard a lot this year has to do with, can you tell me what the term bolting means? Ah, and I know yeah. when you're an edible gardener, you have to understand what bolting is. So yeah. can you share with everyone what it is and why gardeners sure. should care about bolting? Sure. Well, bolting is when a plant that is generally used for its leaves begins to flower. And so it, so lettuces, for example, will bolt and they'll send up this thick, fleshy flowers talk right out of the center of the plant. And at this point, the plant is putting all of its energy into those flowers and then the subsequent seeds, and it's no longer putting its energy into its leaves. And so at that point, it pretty much ceases leaf production, and the flavor of those leaves often begins to decline. And so you really want to make sure that you're you're picking as much as you can before those plants bolt. And generally, it's we, we talk about this most with lettuces because they really are cooler season plants. And so when the really hot days of summer kick in, those lettuces will probably bolt. And at that point, you need to pull those out and put something else in their place, which is why it's a good idea to succession plant things like lettuces. So plant a few seeds a couple weeks apart. So you've always got new plants coming on. And then with with lettuces, it seems like, this is not technically proven, I don't think, but it seems like the more you harvest from them, more that bolting is delayed. And so you can slow it down, I think, a bit by, by continually harvesting. And um, But then at some point when those hot days kick in, they're, they're going to bolt anyway. Um, but some another way to, to slow that down a bit is to offer lettuces a little bit of shade, not deep shade, but if if you can plant something that grows over them, maybe like beans up a up a trellis that will shade the lettuces a little bit, it'll shade them from that real intense heat and maybe delay bolting a little bit. But yeah, that's something to keep in mind because when they do bolt and you need to pull them out, you need to have something to put in their place to keep the garden looking looking good. So it's good to plan ahead for things like that. Okay. And if they eat something from a plant that's bolted, they're not going to die. It's just that it might taste a little different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So what are your top tips for urban gardeners with limited space? Mm -hmm. I would say grow plants that you can harvest from for a long part of the season, like I've mentioned earlier. So things like the leafy greens and sprouting broccoli, things that you can clip a little bit from 
for a longer part of the season. Um, beans are great for this too, because especially if you plant a couple, a little uh, spread out a couple weeks apart, you've got a nice looking plant and then can also harvest for a long part of the season. Uh, a couple other things, I would pick a few ideal spots for perennial plants like fruit plants and even flowering perennials. Pick some good spots that you know get really good sun and put the perennial plants there. And then also don't forget about flowers. Even in small spaced urban gardens, it's great to have a lot of flowers mixed in with your edibles because that's just it's helping diversify your garden and bring a lot of beneficial insects in and really keeps a lot of problems at bay. So don't skimp on the flowers just because you want to maximize your, your food production. It's important to have the flowers too. Now I saw in your blog or not on your blog, I saw in your book that um, you mentioned your top 10 favorite um, edibles Mm-hmm. And we've talked about a lot of them, but one of them or a couple of them I wanted to ask you about was the bush type zucchini. Mm-hmm. And is it Mizuna mustard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the bush type zucchini. So some zucchini plants and especially summer squash are the long trailing types that can really just get out of control really fast. But the bush type zucchinis generally grow in in one mass and they, they get they still get big, but only maybe four feet around or so. And so they're just much easier to maintain in a small space. And then Mizuna mustard is a, it's an Asian mustard green and it's got a real deeply cut feathery leaf. And it's great to use when it's young. I clip leaves to put in salads and it just adds a nice little bit of bitterness, especially when it's mixed with some sweet lettuce greens. Hmm. But then also as it gets a little bit older and more mature, the leaves are great to to cut and and to um, put in a saute or stir fry. And again, they just have kind of a bright, nicely bitter flavor, not too bitter, but, but just really nice. But it's also such a neat looking plant because of those really feathery leaves and it, it grows in a hmm. mounded form. So it's really nice to use along, along borders as well. Now, a, if people wanted to grow it, can they sow it from seed, direct sow it? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a lot of varieties showing up now that have more red leaves and kind of lime green, yellow leaves. So there's a lot more variety showing up out there. What are some of the more rare edible plants that maybe people would have a hard time locating or that something that you don't you know, see very often? Mm. For our climate, I would say artichokes are a little more rare. Generally, artichokes need two seasons to produce the flower buds, which are the part that we eat. But I've been noticing more and more varieties that are single season, but they do need to be started very, very early. And so they're showing up in more gardens, and I think that's great because it's it's generally been thought they couldn't grow here. But um, but if you get a, a good start on them really early and start your seeds early in the in the winter, they can they can produce plenty of of flower buds and and you can have your own homegrown artichokes. You know, container grown tropical fruits are becoming more common and they can be found certainly at online garden centers or nurseries now that you can have, you can have sent right to you, but there are dwarf citrus and um, figs and pomegranates that can be grown really well in containers. And as long as you have a good spot to bring them in, in the winter, then they can be really successful. So I know quite a few people that are growing little lime trees out on their patio, and it's just great to have access to something like that 
grown right at home. Um, the overwintering part is is the tricky part because citrus, for example, yeah. really need to stay warm and they really need a lot of light. And so it would be important to find a spot like that in, in your house somewhere. And then something like figs and pomegranates, they do need to get cold, but not as cold as it gets here. Yeah. So if you've got a cellar type of space, you can overwinter those really well. But they're showing up more and more um, on, you know, balcony gardens and and patios. And, and it's really great to see things like that. People are pushing the envelope a little bit and trying something new. How about a couple of invasive ed- edibles that people need to be cautious of? I know you mentioned strawberries. Mm-hmm. Um, raspberries, I have to say, yes. are challenging. <laughs> they are really challenging, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And they're are, complicated. But- well, you know, they, they grow pretty much like a weed, and so they're not too hard to be successful with. Okay. But they also, you'll find little raspberry plants popping up 10 feet from where you've planted them. For the rest and, of your life, right? Right, and mm-hmm. it's all because they send out these little underground runners that sprout wherever they want to. So really, you can keep, you can keep ahead of them just any time you see those. You need to... Um, you need to dig those out and try to get as much of that root as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And and you can stay ahead of them. And I, even though they are a pain, I think they're worth growing because they're, they're just so good. Is there anything um, that you would not grow? Oh, gosh. Not much. Okay. <laughs> I can't think of anything that I wouldn't at least try. Okay. Um, but a couple others that are you know, somewhat invasive. Um, dill can be just a bit of a pain because... When it sets seed and the seeds fall, they they self seed very very easily. Yeah. So you'll just be pulling little dill seedlings a lot. Yes. But it doesn't. It's it's controllable. It's not yeah. like it'll take over. And then of course there's mint, which yes. we all know takes over. But yeah. all of these really are controllable. I don't think um, they'd ever get that out of hand that you just couldn't couldn't keep them in control. Well, and I happen to like the the smell, the fragrance of both of those. So mm-hmm. if I run into it, I just take a, a second to appreciate them and then I move on. I pull, They pull right. out very, so their roots are very shallow, so they're easy to pop out. That's true. Yeah, mint especially is easy just to pull along those roots <laughs> yeah. and get a bunch of it out of the ground. Yep, yep. That's awesome. Okay, so... Um, let's see here. What else do we have? Oh, edibles that seem to cause the most anxiety for gardeners. If if somebody's going to come up to Emily and say, I've got to talk to you about this edible, what are they going to talk to you about? Mm, probably fruit trees. Really? I would yeah. have not guessed that. Well, I mean, that pops into my head. One, because the anxiety of even planting a fruit tree, I think, is a pretty big deal because people seem to be really afraid of pruning. Okay, And it's just really not that hard to prune a fruit tree. And if you look online anywhere, you'll find all kinds of things that guide you to exactly how you should prune a fruit tree and what types of things you should look for to get rid of. And really, unless you hack the you know, the top of the tree off, you're, <laughs> you're not going to do much damage. But people get really, really nervous when they see a spot on a leaf or a spot on their fruit. And I guess most of my advice is, yeah, especially with apples, you're probably going to run into some problems because they are pretty fussy trees and there are a lot of diseases and a lot of insects that can cause trouble on them. Yep. But unless you're trying to make money off of this fruit, it's really not that big of a deal. And you'll get plenty of decent fruit from it. You might have little splotches that you need to cut out, but 
but most years it'll be fine. Some years you might have some problems. And um, so I think I think people get a little over-anxious about diseases that show up and, and um, really just by keeping them pruned and keeping the area around fruit trees really nice and clean, a lot of the problems that you hear about can be kept at bay. Mm-hmm. Um, but people just shouldn't worry so much. They should just plant them and, and, and try their hand at pruning if they, if they, prune a little too much one year, they'll learn. And then the next year they can take it a little easier. Yep. It's like uh, teaching yourself to give your kids haircuts. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Those first couple haircuts aren't so sweet. (laughs) Yeah. And and the better part is that the fruit trees won't be embarrassed going to school. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, Hey, is there anything that that you consider foolproof that, that a gardener just cannot go wrong with? I would probably not be a very good horticulturist if I said that there was a foolproof one, but <laughs> but um, I would think I would think kale really is really hard to mess up. Huh. Kale and chard and it's, chard. There are not many insects that go after them. They really don't get any diseases. In most years, they just do fine without any work from you, um, and they grow super easy from seeds. So you can plant the seeds right in the ground in the spring and without rabbits or other little creatures eating them, um, they'll grow beautifully. So I'd say those two are just about as foolproof as you can get. Okay. Now, in terms of um, things that are inspiring to you, do you have something on your wish list that you want to try the next time you have a garden? Um, yeah. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say this. Most Minnesota gardeners will probably oh, no. be in shock. Can I guess? Sure. Is it rhubarb? Yeah. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I'm growing rhubarb for the first time this year, and I'm growing it in containers. Oh, you're um, kidding. Because I can't grow things in the ground here, and so I'm yes. curious to see if I can overwinter rhubarb in containers. But there's oh. that, um, because I love eating it, and usually I have enough friends that give me enough that I don't need to grow it myself. But I thought I cannot be a northern gardener and not grow rhubarb any wow. longer. So, <laughs> wow! Yeah, so I'm I've, I'm finally I'm finally joining the ranks. You are well. I know. There, and now you know <laughs> think, what? I'll send uh-huh. you one of my re- rhubarb recipes. If you're going to send oh, me a kale fantastic. recipe, I've got a great rhubarb recipe recipe for you. You'll love it. Great. <laughs> Can you share some design principles that would help a gardener set or set their incorporation of edibles apart from the rest? Mm. I think my first bit of advice would be don't don't plant in rows. Okay. People people always tend to plant food plants in rows and ornamentals in masses. And if you can think of your edibles as ornamentals, I think it will really make them look much more interesting. And um, and more ornamental. So that's, that's a great quote. Yes, yeah, that's a great yeah. idea. Unless, of course, you're planting a really formal garden, and then the rows are are part of the design. But in general, I would say avoid planting in rows. Hmm. Um, another thing is to mix it up. Plant a lot of ornamentals with your edibles. Edible plants definitely benefit from having flowering plants nearby. And I generally try to do about half edible, half ornamental especially perennial ornamentals because they add a lot of color and structure and permanence to your garden and really make the edibles a very interesting feature. 
And so if you've got that framework of a lot of perennial plants, you can tuck in different or different edibles every year and, and really change things around. But it's great to have that structure and also the really long bloom period of a lot of ornamental perennials in your yard to bring a lot of insects in and just make it very diverse. Hmm. And then I would also encourage people to think vertical. Think about what you can use in your garden to get things growing up. And so really nice, interesting structures to to support your, your climbing plants. Or like I mentioned earlier, containers in your garden to, to pull things up a level. So think think vertical. Try to try not to just think about growing right on the ground, but, but getting things growing up. Hmm. Now, what are some of your favorite gardening tools when you're in your garden? Things that are mm. in your, your garden bag that you just couldn't be in your garden without? Yeah, you know, I have... I, the, a, tr- a garden trowel is my absolute favorite because I tend to like to just be on the ground close to the plants when I'm working on them. It's nice to have a longer-handled shovel for doing some things, but I have a, an old garden trowel that's really heavy steel with a wooden handle, and I got it at a flea market somewhere, and so it's really old, and the handle is just kind of oily and, and smooth, and it's just the most wonderful thing I'm just so to jealous. hold in my hand. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and um, and it's I use it for for everything. I use it for planting, you know, and for weeding and just scraping scraping weeds, you know, from around the plants. And and it's just the best thing to have. And and it's important to get something good because these plastic ones and oh, they just this trowel is going to do a lot of work. And so you want it to be something that's not going to break when you dig into the firm ground. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's by far my favorite. Um, I also have a, a small spade with a long handle. The blade is only about five or six inches and it's really handy for getting in and around in small spaces because a lot of the gardening I've done has been in small spaces. And so it's really easy to, to get in there in between plants and tucking things in. Um, those are my two favorite. Now, do you sit on the ground when you're, when you're gardening or do you have something that you're sitting on? Um, a lot of times I kneel Okay, and I have a nice pair of leather knee pads that I really like to use. Hmm. Um, yeah. And then I've also got a really, a small, um, angled, sharp, like little cultivating hoe, and I keep it really sharp. And it's and it doesn't have a long handle; it's on a short handle, so you have to do it when you're down on the ground. I love, I just love crawling around on the ground and be and smelling the plants and being so close to them. So I tend to kind of crawl through instead of walk through and work. But I've got this tiny little cultivating hoe that I keep really sharp, and then it really is just nice for for scraping scraping weeds out around tightly tightly planted plants. Hmm. So those are probably my three favorite things. Those are your favorites. I've got four kids and I love gardening with them. But what are your tips to parents when they come to you and say, how can I incorporate my kids into mm. growing edibles? Mm-hmm. Yeah, gosh, that's so important. And um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts too. But a couple of thoughts I have is um, I think it's important in order to get them really interested, I think it's important for them to see the process from beginning to end. And so to start a few seeds and actually watch those plants grow and be able to harvest from them, and then if it's an annual plant, 
then understand why you need to pull that out at the end of the season and compost it or, or whatever you do with it. But I think it's important for them to see that whole process because if they just go into the garden and you've started everything and they see the tomatoes growing there, they might not really get it and they might not understand really the wonder of that. Mm-hmm. And so I think having them be a part of that whole process is really important. And then I think it can be really helpful to get them excited about it is to is to create some kind of a scheme for the garden and, and especially if it's maybe one particular spot in the garden that is theirs to to be in charge of. It it could be really fun to have a theme garden. So whether it, maybe it's based on a color or um maybe something like a pizza garden where they can plan all the things that they want to have on, on their pizza later in the season and then have them get all these things started or a salsa garden or, I don't know, lasagna, something like that where, um, where there's a theme and they can be a part of that, that planning. But I think making them part of the whole process and, and getting them excited about having that little piece of their own to, to take care of and to nurture. And then they'll see what happens if they don't water it enough or if um, certain insects show up. But I think then also that's an important part of it too is is really having them spend time out there and look at the insects that show up and, and talk with them about why some insects are, are maybe bad in our gardens and why some are good and, and start talking about how... Um, how that whole little ecosystem works and how all those organisms work together. Um, those are some some ideas that I've seen have helped kids really get enthusiastic about getting involved in gardening. Yes, absolutely. I know when I'm out there with my kids, well, my kids have actually, you know, kind of been forced into gardening with me because mm-hmm. if they want to spend time <laughs> with me, they need to come out to the garden. Right. But, um, you know, I always tell people that for for me, when I'm with the kids in the garden, I think about it like, um, oh, how do they say it? Like therapy uh, or, or psychologists say that, you know, if you're, if you need to have a deep conversation with someone, you should, you shouldn't just be sitting together, staring at each other across the table. You should be busy doing something together. Mm-hmm. So whether you're walking mm-hmm. side by side or you're, you're busy doing something, but I always find that I have some of the best conversations with my kids when we're in the garden because they're busy, you know, they have yeah. a job, but yet, you know, it's kind of quiet. We're out there together and it's tedious, you know, a lot of times. Mm-hmm. You know, you're picking weeds or you're thinning or you're pruning or you're, you know, you're doing something, but it's tedious work and it's together. And, you know, to your point earlier, you're down low to the ground. But that's what I always find is that we we sometimes we have the best conversations. I And out of my four kids, some of them really love it. Some of them don't. And so they're not mm-hmm. they're not as productive as others. Um, mm-hmm. Emma is an my daughter. Emma is an extremely diligent gardener, but she's very Aww. slow. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if I gave her, you know, like a a, a twelve inch by twelve inch area to weed, mm-hmm. my goodness, she would get every weed, and it would look wow. absolutely fabulous. But that might yeah. take her twenty minutes, right? Know? Right. <laughs> Where with my my son Will, I'm going to say, okay, we've got to get through this whole fence line, you know, and mm-hmm. um, he's got to see that. Okay, we're moving, we're making progress. So. I don't yeah. know. It's different. Kids are, you know, it's different, but they do. They love the edibles. And I always say they, they show up at planting time and they show up at harvest time because uh-huh. those are the most exciting times. <laughs> yeah, um, right. And then occasionally they come by and go, Mom, there's something really gross happening on your tomato. But otherwise, 
<laughs> yeah, we're not well, hearing too much from them. So. Yep, and that's good that they're observant about it. And even if they don't realize it at the time and if it feels like a chore, I'm, I have a feeling they'll remember it and feel something very you're very deep about that having made that connection oh in a, yes in a garden and it's, it's something that, that i think is really important to us whether we know it or not is yeah. connecting not only with our food but with the earth and, yes and i think whether we realize it or not we get a lot you get a lot from a garden in that way yeah and, it would be um, a great first date place wouldn't it absolutely yeah mm-hmm. come out and weed my garden with me. that's right come weed <laughs> Um, hey, I have to ask, because I saw it on your blog, and I just thought it was the cutest thing ever, but um, you said that um, you got to present at the State Fair, and that was a highlight in your gardening <laughs> yeah. career, and of course, it's State Fair time, and you're not here for the great Minnesota get-together, but oh, I can't stand yes, it. <laughs> tell me about this, tell me about your passion for the State Fair and what you presented when you were at the State Fair. Well, it's funny, you know, thinking you had asked very early on in this interview about growing up and kind of my first... Um, introduction to to gardening and plants. And something that I always really loved, as young as I can remember, is going to the county fair where I grew up. And I remember seeing all the vegetables on display and seeing these kids who were so proud of what they had grown and, and showing these things off. And so I always felt like, I want to do that. I want to be a part of that. But it was so far outside of my family's kind of realm of, I don't know, reality that it was always just something a little separate, but it was always in the back of my mind. And as early as, as I can remember when someone would ask me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I always said I wanted to be a farmer. And I didn't really know what that meant, except for the fact that I thought it was really fun to go to the county fair and see these vegetables and see the cute little sheep and stuff these kids had, had taken care of. But that was always in my mind. And so I've always loved that fair time. And then when I moved to Minnesota for for grad school and I experienced the state fair for the first time, it was like my little county fair on, on steroids. And it was just so much fun to, um, to see all of these people from all over the state coming in with these things that they had worked so hard to produce. And, and it just really speaks to me. And, and so now of course, so much of the fair is about rides and, and, and fatty food and and things like that. But that that really, that basic original part of it, which is showing off the wonderful things that we've produced throughout this season, is still very strong for me. And I've always really loved that. And so a couple years ago when I was asked to come and speak about edible landscaping in the, the agriculture, horticulture building, it was just like everything came full circle because because I've always loved that that atmosphere and the tradition of the fair and everyone coming together from rural areas and and talking about agriculture and so that was my little part of it to hopefully bring a little bit of this to people living in the cities and saying you can do some of this at home too you don't need hmm. to live in the country to to make these things a part of your life um, because that's what I've managed to do is make my city life very, very much a part of growing, growing food. And, and so it was just fun for me to be able to be at the fair and talk about that to people who might be trying to figure out how they can incorporate some of that in their own lives. So I love I'm it. very, I'm very much missing the fair this year. I'm keep looking, I'm thinking maybe, maybe there'll be a cheap plane ticket and I can, <laughs> I can give back for a couple of days because yeah, the fair is one of my favorite my favorite things about living in Minnesota. 
Wow. Well, let me know if you ever come back to town. I got to at least take you out for coffee. Okay, that sounds great. It'd be really- So tell everybody what you're currently working on, because I know we were talking about your book and that it's got a Kindle version, but you're also really busy like taking documents and making them available online for gardeners, which I think is a fabulous way to um, get the information out there for people. You know, I'm, I'm actually working for, for my job. I'm working on, <laughs> funny, we would be talking about this. I'm working on translating all of our really old home fruit growing fact sheet into an into an ebook and it's actually I'm using a I'm using some software that makes it able for people to read the book on their computer as well as on a mobile device hmm. and so I'm hoping that we'll have a lot more you know a wider audience because it's not just limited to an iPad or a Kindle and um and so it'll be interesting to see because all of these things are already online and so we're just putting it in a format that's just more more modern and more interactive. Yes. And so I'm hoping that, that it'll be um, well received because it's been a long time coming that these fact sheets need to be need to be updated and yep. and uh, you know we're of course talking much less about what kinds of fertilizers and pesticides to use. In fact, we don't talk about that at all anymore. Yes. Um, all the old fact sheets say, if you see this problem, spray it with this and this. And it's just <laughs> awful that that's there. And so, yeah, I've been working and that's my, that's my project these days is huh. rewriting all of those. So that's been kind of fun. Okay, yeah. two quick things and then I'll let you go because I know this has gone really late. But okay, um, you no mentioned problem. photography. Do you uh-huh. have a camera that you like? Um, yeah, you know, not really. Okay. I, I've taken most of my pictures with a little digital point and shoot. You're kidding. Yeah. Even I'm for not. your book? <laughs> um, well, yeah, the ones that ended up in there that, that do say author photo. You're most kidding. Most of those were taken with this. And I mean, I would be happy to tell you that one, but it's like seven years old. But it's the best little camera I've ever had. I'm about ready to fall over right now. <laughs> I cannot believe that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to find. I have a copy of my book in front of me. I, yeah, I don't know. This little, I have this little Fuji Fine Picks, and it is better than most of the bigger cameras I've used. Um, wow! It just collects light in a really good way. And I also, I try to think about um, time of day that I take pictures, and early morning tends to be best because the light is more diffused and. Huh. Just not as bright, um, but yeah, I, I just want to point and shoot. Are you coming back to Minnesota anytime soon? Really, the, I, I know I'll be there sometime, probably this fall. Okay, but um, primarily next winter and spring, I'll be back a few times for a couple different talks I'm doing. Um, I'm, I've got. Let's see, I'm doing a keynote mostly in March. Um, I'm keynote speaker for a couple different events, hmm. a Dakota County kind of spring expo. Okay. And then some other county that just contacted me. And then I'm doing, last year I did a class at the, at the Arboretum on edible landscaping and it was part of the sustainable yard series. Hmm. And I'm going to be doing that again in March. Um, so I'm hoping what I did last year when the book first came out is I planned about a month to be in town and I absolutely packed it. You did. With events. 
it was just it was insane <laughs> and um and so it seems like a good time of year to be there to promote the book and also just to to you know, do a lot of talks and it's really fun because people are so fired up about gardening at that time of year so i'm probably going to be there most of the month of march okay and uh and doing as many talks and events as i can so all right i'm making a note of that all right that'll be good um okay well that's great well, Emily, thank Good. you so much for being well, on the show. Thank you and too. yeah, this was really fun, and I just think it's great that you're doing this. And and uh, yeah, it'll be exciting. I'm I'm going to spend more time on your site now and listen to some of your other guests you've had on. Now that things have calmed down here for me a little bit. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. All right. Well, this was so much fun. Oh, my gosh. With you. Unbelievable. Fabulous connection. Emily, I'll be calling on you many, many times in the future. So that sounds great. And as soon as I start gardening out here, I'll have all kinds of new tips for people. Oh, love it. (laughs) All right. Well, great talking to you and we'll be in touch. All right. Have a great night. Okay. Thanks. You too. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Emily Teppe, author of The Edible Landscape, for being my guest. Just a reminder, you can find this podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher in the BlackBerry podcast. You can also subscribe directly to the blog post to get them via email. I'll have all the information from the show today at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find this episode in the top menu under the Still Growing Podcast. You can always find me at six footmama.com or on facebook.com backslash still growing with six foot mama. You can also email me directly at jennifer at six Feel free to send in your questions for the Master Gardener Roundtable, which airs every other month on Still Growing. Your question will be answered either via email or during the podcast. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. All right, so Emma researched some jokes for vegetables. So some vegetable jokes. Is that right, Emma? Yep. How many of them did you get? Um, nine. You have nine jokes about vegetables. Yes, and one long one. And one long one, but the majority of them are short. Yes. And you're going to do these with your brothers tonight, right? Yes. Okay, take it away. Who are you going to do this first joke with? John. All right, John. John, why did the tomato blush? I don't know. Because he saw the salad dressing. <laughs> now everybody's supposed to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 okay. All right. Really? Next, PJ. Come here. So I'm going to, you're going to say, who's there? Knock, knock. Who's there? Lettuce. Lettuce who? Lettuce in and you'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Why do potatoes argue? I don't know. Because they never see eye to eye. PJ, come here. Why shouldn't you tell secrets in a cornfield? I don't know. 
because there are too many ears. <laughs> That's a jolly day for everyone. What? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> what is the strongest veggie? I don't know. A muscle sprout. <laughs> PJ, are you ready? What did the bacon say to the tomato? I don't know. Let us get together. <laughs> Come here, John. It's your turn. Where did the onion go for some beer? I don't know. The salad bar. <laughs> okay, next. Anna was making a math book. Her boss is happy with her math book, except for the last problem in the book. The boss angrily said, This problem is wrong. If you had four onions and you give me all of them, how many do you have left? Anna replies, What makes you think I'm going to give you onions? Now laugh. <laughs>